come in in the morning and then you come in here. So I think as you listen to both sermons, it will kind of give you a richer and bigger picture uh, of the message of the book of Job. So I would encourage you in front uh, to just go listen to, to that sermon. Amen. 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 I haven't introduced myself. My name is Black. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I get the uh, privilege and honor to lead the tribe. Uh, so if you're young adults, teenagers of 23 to 25, come join us. We are on a Wednesday evening. Uh, we're not just called the Godly. We love Jesus. We love each other. We want to teach each other as church mates. We really want to do this Christian thing together. So if you're young adults, please pull through. Let me pray and then we'll jump straight into our, our sermon for this evening. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Lord, may your mercy reign on us. May your mercy fuel us. May your mercy drive us to love our enemies as you've loved us. We who were once far from so I see you in our mouth with Jesus. We were your enemies. You stepped closer through your son, your mercy. And so I pray that this evening, that same mercy will open up our eyes and the ears of our hearts as we hear you speak to us. Amen. 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 I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I do not have money. What I do have, my very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a very long period. Skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you, I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. Anybody know where that's taken from? Yes. That's taken from the movie Taken. The basic premise of the film, I mean, most of us have watched it. CIA agent whose daughter goes on a trip to Paris with her friends. Uh, upon their arrival, they get kidnapped. Hence the title, Taken. And the rest of the movie, what we see is a father with all the skills that he's acquired many years that he's been in the CIA, looking for his daughter, going on a relentless pursuit, somebody say relentless pursuit, to find his daughter at all cost. And I think the premise of this film kind of gives us the springboard into the, to the heart of the, the book of Jonah. That's what I believe the book of Jonah is about, and that's what we'll see for the next couple of weeks as we unpack this book, starting this evening in chapter 1 giving us a summary of what the book of Jonah is, and it's a summary of Jonah we visit over and over uh, throughout the next four weeks starting this evening of what I believe the book of Jonah is about and what God wants to say to us uh, as disciples, as Christians sitting here in 2023 in Medjugorje. What is the book of Jonah or what will we see in the book of Jonah? Here's the summary. I believe we'll see God's relentless pursuit to eliminate sin's grip over our lives, propelling us towards holiness as he fearlessly chases after us, especially from life's darkest corners. 
will see a God who doesn't leave us, who doesn't forsake us, who doesn't abandon us, but a God who is determined to pursue us. Why? Because he sees what sin does in our lives. How sin stifles us, how sin robs us of enjoying a relationship with him to the fullest. That's what we want to see of the prophet Jonah, whose sin in this book was self-centeredness. Jonah did not want the blessing of God the mercy of God and the grace of God to be extended to the enemies of Israel. Instead, Jonah wanted all of that for himself and his own people. And God sees how Jonah's heart-heartedness stifles his relationship with God and his relationship with how he's supposed to love uh, his neighbor. And so God relentlessly pursues him to eliminate sin's grip over Jonah's life. Propelling Jonah towards holiness. God wants Jonah to be holy, to love God, to love neighbor as he loves himself, to be an example of what it means to be a son of God. And so God wants to eliminate that grip over his life so that he can live that fully. What will God do? He will fearlessly chase after Jonah. <coughs> From all the dark corners that Jonah finds himself in. From all the dark corners that we find ourselves in. When sin entices us, we give ourselves over to sin. God will come find you. God will pursue you. God will pull you out of that darkness. Amen. Amen. Two things that we're going to do uh, this evening. We're going to look at chapter 1, um, which was read for us earlier on. Uh, but before we get there, I want us to make two stops. So if we're going to go on this journey for the next four weeks, I want us to just get into the garage, get our snacks, and fill up. And prepare as we go on this journey in the book of John. And what are those two stops uh, where we want to get our snacks from the journey? The first one, I called it the apologetic. Um, and the apologetic is not what it sounds like. I'm not going to make an apology for the book of John. But apologetic comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means to give a defense, to give a vindication, to make a case for the validity of the book of John. As we read the book of Jonah, most of us have interacted with it. Is it fiction? Is it fact? Is Jonah a real person? Was Nineveh a fictional city? Was this fish, sushi, karapa, or fish? Are these real characters written in real history? Uh, or are they just made up characters that have used pictures over the years? Have used to keep kids quiet. The second stop that we're going to make is to clear some misconceptions about the book. Um, I think there's, this is probably one book that has so many misconceptions and it's been misunderstood um, in terms of what its core message is. Right? So let's do that. Uh, let's get into our first stop, uh, the apologetic fact of fiction. And the first snack I want us to get off the shelf, right? the first thing we want to take for our journey, uh, is answering this question, was Jonah a real man? Was Jonah a real man? If you have your Bibles, look at verses 1. Verses 1 tells us uh, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. In 2 Kings, you can take this down in verses 14, uh, or rather chapter 14 and verses 25. We are told of an encounter between uh, a king uh, named Jerusalem II and between a character uh, named Jonah, the son of Amittai. So we know that from 2 Kings, Jeroboam was a real king who ruled in Israel uh, around 700 BC. And so Jeroboam and 2 Kings gives us the historical context and the time that Jonah existed in. So 
Jonah cannot be a fictional character. He existed in real history. He interacted with a real king who ruled the real nation of Israel. In fact, the author of Second Kings also gives us the place that the son of Amittai was born in. It's a place called Gethapa. And so if we had the ability to teleport back to 700 BC, we would go to a, a town named Gethapa and ask the residents if they know a man named Amittai, whose son is John. So this prophet exercised his office around the reign of Jericho. Um, so he, that at least is one snack that tells us uh, that Jonah was a real person. The second snack is how Jesus and the Gospel writers think of Jonah and how they reference Jonah. So in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42, you can take this down as well. Um, Jesus and the Gospel writers don't speak of Jonah and the city of Nineveh as fictional people in a fictional city, but instead they treat Jonah as a real person who went to preach a real message to real people in a real city. In fact, what's happening in Matthew 12 is that the religious leaders of Jesus' time asked Jesus to give them a sign, authenticate that you are the Messiah. Jesus says, you adulterous and crooked generation are not going to get a sign. God has already given you a sign and given your ancestors through Jonah and King Solomon. Through Jonah, uh, God extended his mercy to outsiders. Through King Solomon, uh, God extended his mercy even to the Queen of Sheba. And so Jesus comes as that mercy, as God's mercy that extends to everyone else in the world. And so if you don't believe those signs, you guys are not going to get a sign from me. In fact, Jesus then predicts uh, a future event in which the real people of Nineveh, he says this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, uh, who repented from the preaching of Jonah, that those people will one day stand as judges to these unrepentant Israelites. So the son of Amittai is a real person. At least Jesus and the Gospel writers treat him as a real person. And so I'm not a clever guy, but if my king will treat Jonah as a real character. I better treat him as a real character as well. So that's our, our second snack. Our third snack is asking the question, was the fish real? Right? Uh, or was this some made of fish? Again, in Matthew 12, 38 to 42, Jesus compares and even uses Jonah's real day, a three-day submersion, in the belly of the fish as a sign that points to his real three-day submersion in the grave. And so Jesus then says, uh, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, a real event, he's going to be, uh, is basically in his grave for three days. Uh, I think this is probably uh, worth saying that if you go listen to the morning sermon, Royan speaks about the semantics of uh, what the word fish is, right? Um, and I think he does a brilliant job, so you can go check that out. Uh, but it stands to logic that if this fish could swallow up a man, it wasn't a goldfish. Right? <laughs> uh, it has to be a big fish that can swallow up a man. But the point that Jesus is making to his audience, and the point that he's making to us, is that we should understand that the, 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 or understand the miraculous nature right, um, of Jonah's event. If God could suspend the laws of the animal kingdom, then it stands to reason that he could suspend the, the laws of time and space to raise Jesus from the grave. And that's the conclusion that Jesus wants us to get to. Uh, if God suspended the laws of the animal kingdom in Jonah, uh, 
then therefore it must be true. But for Jesus God will suspend the laws of the time, time raising from the grave. Amen. 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 I'm still together. Amen. Good. Right. So that was our first stop. Our second stop, uh, and then we'll get into our passage. Uh, just a few misconceptions about the, the book of Jonah. So the first misconception is that Jonah was a scared prophet uh, who was afraid of being killed by the fierce Ninevites. That's why he ran away. That's why he didn't go to, to Nineveh because he was scared. Nineveh uh, was cruel and uh, he would have gotten killed if he would preach the message uh, of God. But already in chapter 1 verses 12, which we'll see later on, uh, when Jonah would suggest to these sailors that they should throw him up, uh, overboard because then the, the storm will, will come down. It seems like a, it's a noble thing that Jonah suggests. If you guys check me out, all of this will end. You guys will be saved. I would have sacrificed myself for it. Right? Um, but that's not the truth. Um, in fact, we see at the end of chapter 4, verses 3, verses 9, what his real motives are. Jonah wasn't afraid of dying. He wasn't. That wasn't a noble act. Jonah was, was, was better killing himself than obeying God. Jonah was better to kill himself than go share the message of God with the Ninevites, right? So he wasn't afraid of dying at all. Right? He wasn't a, a scared prophet who didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid they would kill him. In fact, in chapter 3, you see that. If Nineveh was so scary, Jonah would have trembled as he walked into Nineveh. But he didn't. In fact, he just walks in nonchalantly, doesn't even give a full message, gives a one-line summary of the message and just walks off to go outside the city and south. And hopefully God will judge these guys and won't repent. So those were his real motives. He wasn't afraid of dying. He just did not want these guys to experience the mercy of God again. Jonah's sin is that he wants that for himself. God's grace, God's blessing, God's reward, God's mercy for him and his own people, but not for anyone else in the world. And lastly, misconception, did God need Jonah? Why does God keep on chasing after Jonah? Uh, God desperately need this guy to help fulfill his mission? That's not what's happening in the book of Jonah. But again, we see God's relentless pursuit. God's love. God is determined to work something out of Jonah. Could God have fulfilled this mission with anyone else? He could have. He's God. But there's something that he wants to work out of Jonah. There's something that God wants to work out in us as his followers, as his children, as, as believers, uh, when God relentlessly comes after us, when we've gotten ourselves caught up in sin, and he'll come chase us because of stuff that he wants to work out of us. In Jonah's case, it was his self-centeredness. That's what God wanted to work out. Jonah knew that if he goes to Nineveh and preaches, these people repent, God will be gracious towards them. Um, and we've seen again he is close or his proximity with King Jeroboam. Uh, King Jeroboam was part of the political elite, and, and those guys were waiting for the judgment of God to be pronounced on other nations, but not them. Uh, and so Jonah did not want to be part of this crazy thing that God was doing. Why would you send me to go uh, share your judgment with other people only so that they can repent? And once they repent, all my countrymen are going to look at me. Oh, and sign up. Why did I go there? I don't want to be part of this crazy thing that you should do it for. After all, God and some of these Israelites, uh, rather, after all, Jonah and some of these Israelites treat God as though 
is a puppet. And they're the masters. God should do what they want God to do. But God wants to expose this in Jordan. And not for the sake of just exposing it, but for the sake of restoring Jordan. For the sake of restoring the relationship that he has with God. Because Jonah is good, like most Israelites, with religious performances, but his heart is far away from God. As you read throughout this whole book, if you're a slow reader like me, it will take you 15 minutes. I think you guys are smarter, it will take you less. But as you read through this book, you see that every other character in the book that you don't expect to respond and listen to God does exactly that. The irony in this whole book, right? The sailors respond and turn to God. The fish listens to God. The Ninevites turn and listen to God. Even the animals of the Ninevites go on and fast. They listen to God. And yet the prophet of God doesn't. The prophet of God turns around, pardons his heart, and would rather die than listen to God or even be used as an instrument of mercy towards his enemies. And before we think, as we sit here uh, this evening, that the only people who need the gospel are the non-believers around us. The book of Jonah will remind us that you need the gospel as much as non-believers. You were saved by the good news you will be sustained by the good news. You will win the race through the good news. You need it as much as the guy in the office when you think that he is hopeless, he's reject, he needs the gospel. Jonah's book will say, you too need it as much as he does. Jonah needed saving as much as the Benedictus did. So, those are the two stops. Um, if you missed anything, uh, these guys are going to sell them by Monday morning night. So you can go back and just refresh some of the stuff. But I think it will help us as we go through uh, the book of Children. Amen. Amen. So let's jump straight into chapter 1. Um, and then we'll, we'll just go through this passage and hear what the Lord has to say to us this evening through chapter 1 of Children. Uh, and the thing that I wanted to do and how I've structured chapter 1. And I think it's structured like that. I, I didn't come up with this myself. Um, it, it highlights the journey that uh, Jonah takes as he gives himself over to sin. Right? That's, that's what the structure of chapter 1 um, highlights for us. And I believe it's a journey we take as well when we give ourselves over to sin. See, nobody just wakes up. No Christian wakes up in a state of pure rebellion. We don't wake up just saying, I hate God, I hate the church. I don't want to do this thing anymore, I hate life groups. I think there's a, a downward spiral, a trajectory, a downward movement that we take to get to the point where we hate God, we hate the church. We don't want to be around Christians because they remind us of the thing that we are running away from. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 1 of John, stages of descent or stages of uh, dissension. So the first stage is rejection. Verses 1 to 3, where you reject God's word and anything that's associated to God's word. And once you do that, the next stage that's coming is refusal. Verses 4 to 6, you will refuse any correction or any rebuke, especially if it comes from God's word or anyone who rebukes you with the word of God. And after that, 
Next page, we go down to reluctancy, verses 7 to 8. When you settle into your stubbornness, essentially creating your own religion because you have to justify the mess that you find yourself in. And then lastly, that's where we end up in the day, verses 11 to 16. Again, we don't want anything to do with God or the church or Christians because we just want to run away we sit here and sing, and I don't know what stage one. Some of us might be on stage one, stage three, stage four. But here's one thing that I know the Book of John wants to tell us. That's one thing I want us to walk away with, even if we forget anything else that I say. But in verses 17, we're reminded of God's relentless pursuits. In fact, this whole passage is written with God's relentless pursuits. Verses 4, verses 6, verses 18, 10, verses 14. That underneath all of this, stages of descent, besides these stages of descent, on top of these stages of descent, one thing that's always and constantly there is God's love for you. It's God's pursuit for you. If you belong to Him, you will not be lost. If you belong to Him, He will not leave you nor forsake you again. You will see God relentlessly pursuing you because He wants to eliminate sin's grip over your life. The sin that so easily has got you entangled and has got you into the dark corners that you find yourself in. He wants to eliminate that, propel you towards holiness, and He will fearlessly chase after you no matter what. That's what I want to walk away with. Jump into the first stage then, uh, stage one, verses one to three. Listen to what God's word says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So we find in verses 1 that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. What is that word? Well, we find it in verses 2. Arise, get up, wake up, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Again, we can be very suspicious of Jonah because of what we know of him, of King Jeroboam, and how even Amos uh, uh, spoke against King Jeroboam that, that Jonah favorably prophesied uh, towards. We might be suspicious of him, but as we read Jonah, we're expecting Jonah to respond as the prophet of the Lord. Right? What we expect him of Jonah as he gets the call in verses 2 is to respond like how he responds in verses 9. Uh, that he would say, verse 3, if he would have responded the way we expected him to, he would say, uh, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And he would say this as he's marching into Nineveh and is pronouncing judgment on them. Right? But instead, Jonah doesn't do that. Verses 3, he rejects the word. Verses 3, we are told that Jonah, in fact, did rise. Who will be but he rose to flee. He rose to reject. Somebody say he rose to reject. He rose to reject. Because when you think about it, Nineveh and Tarshish were literally on the opposite side of the world. But here is the 
or is adamant in his rejection of God's word. He's very determined to reject God's word, that he's willing to go as far as west, away from the east that he was instructed to go to. Why? Well, the answer is there in verses 3. There's a phrase that's repeated in verses 3. He's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And so ironically, the prophet who in verses 9 will then eloquently speak about the God who made heaven and who made the sea and the dry land, implying that this God is omniscient, this God is everywhere. Jonah understands this. And yet now, verses 1 to 3, this prophet thinks he can run away from their presence. How ridiculous is that? How futile is that? How childish does that seem? <laughs> before we forget ourselves not to be in the same shoes, when sin blinds us, sin makes us look ridiculous. Sin makes us look futile and childish. And that's what sin did to Jonah. It reduced him to a point of irrationality. Jonah is now reasoning with God in a very, very strange way. In verses 3, we are told that when Jonah goes down to the port, he finds a ship there. That word implies uh, that Jonah might have been thinking, oh, this is such a, a perfect coincidence. I came down to the port to, to run away, and, and here's a ship that's going exactly where it is that I'm desiring to run away to. It just happens to be there. You start reasoning with God in a very strange way, and soon blinds you. That's when you start hearing people say things like, well, if God did not want me to sin, then he would remove problem X. For some of you, you are thinking, if God did not want me to sin, he would remove my problematic X. But uh, <laughs> uh, God didn't want me to struggle with us, then he would remove all the women around. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, really? But some of us are not even that brazen. We're actually more sophisticated in our reasoning. We find clever ways of justifying why we want to reject God's word. Because we want to do our own thing. Jonah wanted to do his own thing. He did not want to listen to God. He didn't want to uh, be with God and come with him on his mission to extend mercy to the rest of the world. God, do my thing. Show mercy to me. Be gracious towards me. Let's not care about those people over there. And here's the point that I'm making, that a heart that rejects God's word slowly and strangely starts reasoning that rejection. Once you reject God's word, it happens very gradually and slowly. You start reasoning and justifying why your rejection is warranted. And if that is happening, then you've begun the descent we moved into the second stage, to refusal. Verses 4 till 6, he would read with me there. So, but the Lord heard the great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the marines were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the calm that was in the ship into the sea. To lighten it for them. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So what we find in verse 4, also tells us that the Lord heard the great wind. Verses 5, the mariners in response to this great wind, they also hurled cargo of the ship to survive. And so the author is trying to tell us something with the repetition of the word hurl. What does the word hurl mean? But here are a couple of synonyms to kind of paint a picture for us. And the word hurl means to toss, to throw, to fling, to cast, to catapult, to project, to launch, to let fly. And so on one hand, what's happening in verses 4 to 6 is that God is unleashing a super storm. It's crazy. Things have been thrown left, right, and center. People are threatened in their lives. They think that they're going to die. On another hand, the mariners are responding appropriately. They're chucking everything out. Anything that's dead weight. We want to chuck out because we want to stay alive. It is chaos. But there's John and Steve. Steve all of this. The text is screaming at us to ask the question, how is this possible? When things have been tossed, flung, launched, let fly, people are frantic, they're crazy, they're throwing things out. When men, men, how is this possible? There's only one way that this is This is an indication of somebody who is slowly dying spiritually. Somebody who is hardened in their hearts. Look at how many times this passage uses the word down. Verses 3, we're told Jonah goes down to Joppa and he finds a ship. Verses 5b, Jonah goes down into the inner part of the ship and he laid down and was fast asleep. So what the author is showing us is that Jonah's physical downward spiral is indicative, or it's a sign, of his spiritual downward spiral. The more he goes down, the harder his heart becomes. The more he's dying spiritually, rejecting God's word, refusing any correction, and he wants to keep on holding on to his own agenda, not repent and turn, give his life to the God who has saved him, who called him, to this wonderful mission. The only way Jonah can sleep is because the storm outside reminds him of the storm that's happening or raging inside. That's the only reason why he's sleeping. If I can sleep, I'll avoid the storm that's outside. If I sleep, I don't have to sit here and give my internal thoughts about what I did and who, who this God is that I'm running away from. I can just lose. Here's the thing. Again, God's relentless pursuit, God will not let him sleep. God will not let you sleep. God will wake Jonah up. If it's not by the storm, but he will wake him up through the screams of those around him. That's what happens in verses 6a when the captain comes frustrated, shocked at the strange behavior. What do you mean, you sleeper? Things are crazy out there, you sleeper. Arise, vuga. This takes us as readers back to uh, verses 2, which is Jonah's original call. God told him to rise in verses 2. He's sleeping and he thinks he can escape God. God comes and screams through a pagan captain. Arise, 
Vuga, go to Nineveh. That's what Jonah was called for, to go to a pagan God-hating nation whose vile lives were an abomination to God. Jonah's response was to run away. And here, ironically, he's in a boat full of pagan idol worshippers. Right? The very thing he was running away from. And the irony is that they all cry out to their false gods. But yet the prophet of God is sleeping. The prophet of God is sleeping. What does this mean for us? We become people who reject God's word. Stay wrong. We enter into stage two and we become people who refuse any correction, especially if it comes from God. And once we do that, Satan has a, a very interesting way of turning our attention away from everything else and using our own sin to focus our attention inwardly. We'll be caught up in our own internal storms. Not care about the war that's happening outside. God has called us to a mission. There's families that are falling apart around us. There's relationships that are failing. There's people who are confused. There's a country that's literally collapsing around us. Just like the people or the captain shouts in verses 6 at the end, there'll be people around us who shout at us and say, we do not want to be, we don't want to perish. We don't want to lose our lives. And instead of us praying, instead of us sharing the gospel, instead of us winning souls to the kingdom of God, bringing true hope, bringing true healing, or bringing life, we'll be sleeping. We will be sleeping. Satan has a way of saying, look, look at your sin. Look at it. And then he elevates the thing, magnifies it. And you spend your whole life just faffing over your own sin and you start becoming an evil gazer and you forget that God has called you to a mission, regardless of how filthy you are. Regardless of how much you're struggling with sin. Am I standing here saying that we shouldn't interrogate our sin and fight against our sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the uh, book of Jonah is saying to us. But once we start looking at our own sin, our own problems, Satan just has a way of magnifying that, turning our eyes away from the real problems that are happening. If God has called us to partner with him as he saves souls, we will neglect all of that. And every time we see each other, I ask you, I know. I know. I know sin is rough. Right? How can I pray for you? I know sin is rough, but I also know that God has called us for worship. I know that the souls will die. Right? I know that we need to go out and go tell people about the good news of the kingdom. Stop being navel gazing. Stop sitting there and thinking. Your problems are bigger than what God has called us to. I think once we sleep, we enter the third stage, reluctance in verses 7 to, to 10. Listen to what the word of God says. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast us that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the Lord fell on John. Then they said to him, Tell us. Uh, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? 
What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God who made heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verses 8, uh, these mariners ask Jonah a number of questions. But the interesting thing is what question they ask first. The first question they ask him is what his occupation is. And then in verses 9, when Jonah answers all the other questions, this is the one question he avoids. He answers who he's from, where he's going, etc., etc. But he avoids answering what his occupation is. Because if he answers what his occupation is, he'll be reminded of what it is that he's running away from. He's the prophet of the Lord who's been called to go take God's message to pagans. Now he's ran away. And even worse, he's now sleeping. See, in the stage of reluctance, we, we become brazen, we become unashamed, uh, and we don't, we, we, we avoid the real issue. We're not, we're not ashamed of avoiding the real issue. And you see, Jonah, he's not ashamed of avoiding the real issue. How does he do that? Well, he uses the right theology, he uses the right Christianese in our uh, instance to cover up what the real issue is. What is your occupation, Jonah? Let me tell you about God who created the skies and the heavens. <laughs> what, are you, what are you running away from, bro? Let's, let's talk. What's the real issue? Now let me tell you how I can expose the text. Let me tell you about the doctrine of election. Mm-hmm. Why? Because he's running away from the real issue. We'll it's say amen and hallelujah to you, Jonah, but we know that your theology means nothing. It means nothing. Because if it meant something, it would affect and change. How you behave. Clearly it doesn't. You've entered into the stage of reluctancy. You are stubborn. Here God is having a conversation with you through these marinas. That's what's happening here. God hasn't left him. God is relentlessly pursuing after Jonah and is even using these pagans to speak to Jonah and remind him of what his mission is. But he's reluctant, he's stubborn. And once we enter into the stage of stubbornness, guess what happens to us? We start separating what we know of God, cognitively, what we understand of Him in our minds. And we separate that from what, what we believe. And effectively, we stop living for God. We can have deep theological conversations, but that's not going to affect the hearts. We've been blessed. The church that really loves the Lord, we open it. We want to dig into it. We want to give each other tools on how to read the word. It's not fall into the trap of using those tools to hide the rubbish. It's not use our theology because we want to run away from God. Even in verses 10, these non-believers or pagans see that this thing is strange. They exclaim, what have you done? What's going on here, Jonah? This, this seems strange. You're telling us about this God who can do all of this and yet you run away from him? This doesn't make sense. That's what happens when we're in a state of reluctancy and stubbornness. We will hold on to our stupidity. People will tell you, oh, I think this, you're not behaving like a Christian. And you'll be like, that's fine. It's okay. I'll hold on to my stupidity. That's right. I don't think this passage is calling us to go on our share of deepest, darkest secrets of the world. But I do think for us to not get into the state of reluctancy. 
think, I think it's advisable that we, we have one person that we speak with. Amen. Somebody that we walk in with. Somebody that we can bear our souls to. Right? Somebody that you completely open with. So much that if this person would expose your fires, that would be the end of it. Sisters to sisters, brothers to brothers. That you do not isolate yourself. Right? But you have somebody who can really walk with you. That you're in each other's lives, in each other's thoughts, in each other's prayers. See, Jonah's sin here was self-centeredness. <clears throat> on wanting to uh, see God extend mercy to outsiders, or even be used as an instrument in God's hand to extend this mercy. I don't know what your sin is, what you're struggling with as you sit here. But here's one thing I know about sin. Once we engage with sin, pay too much attention to it, give all of our uh, being and, and the joy that we have in our salvation to dealing with the sin that Jesus died for on the cross, it takes our eyes away on the mission takes our eyes away from what Jesus has called us to do. Satan again will use that. There's a basketball move called uh, isolation. And, uh, for short, they call it the isolation. And what happens is that one player will try and isolate a player from the opposing team, um, whether the player is defending or they're on offense. Uh, but then all the other uh, team members of the one team will be Guarding mighty members and not isolated. And I think I could probably dump on them or shoot a three on them, uh, or if they're coming to attack, I could defend them. So we play the isolate. Satan does that. Right? He isolates you. Sure. But like a good basketball player, when he dumps on you, it happens while you huh. You'll think, no, I'm just here with dealing with my sin. That's fine. I don't have to think about anything else that's happening. Yeah, sure. This guy in my office is going to reject whatever's happening in church and the mission that they've called us to. I don't have anything to do that. I need to, I need to, to fight to kill the sin. Satan will never use the good thing to put someone else put you in an ISO play. And when you dance on you, your sin is exposed. Does that publicly. Does it in front of non believers. Um, so our eyes are vulgar. Get out of the stage of reluctancy. Because if we don't, then the next final stage is rebellion. And that's where Jonah found himself in verses 11 to 16. We come to the end of our passage. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on, our, on, on us our innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows to him. So in the state of rebellion, we see Jonah just wearing his heart on his sleeve. Um, verses 12 again, it seems like he's doing a noble thing here uh, to try and suggest that these men will throw him uh, a 
report so that the scene would quiet down. But again, we know Jonah doesn't care about these things. Uh, he doesn't care about God's mission. God told him to go to Nineveh, he ran away. The sailors were worshipping false gods around him, he slept. And when he had a chance to tell them who he is, repent, listen to God, and therefore go to Nineveh, which would have calmed the sea. He would rather not repent, listen, and turn around. But instead, he would rather kill himself. He would rather die. And so you see his rebellion. You see he's at that final stage where he doesn't care again. And he's hardened his heart. And so instead of his, uh, uh, again, or rather in his rebellion, he would rather die than repent. And ironically, in verses 13, as we see, the, the, the marinas of the sailors, they're the ones who seem to have a good heart. They don't want Jonah to die. And so they're going to roll faster and harder to try and get to dry land. Um, but obviously they fail. And they can't do it on their own strength. God is the only one who can save the day. God is the only one who can save them. What a sad day it is, church, when we start seeing people who are called to live as lights, living as darkness. I remember not long ago, David was trying to come up with a series for students, and he was looking for titles of what he was going to call the thing. And I was thinking around uh, this whole situation with road shape. And I, I compared load shedding and how I think it's causing havoc in our country and what I was seeing in the church at that time. And I think Christians were going through what I call load shedding. Right? That we constantly living in four or five hours of darkness and two hours of light. Right? Four or five hours of darkness we live like the world around us. The world that God has called us to go share the good news with. We assimilate, we look like them, but we don't care at all to even share the gospel uh, with them. And then two hours, I'm here, whether it's a church, two hours we put a natural status, whatever the thing is. I was like, it just feels like Christians are suffering with Lord shedding. Oh. <clears throat> and I think we can only suffer with Lord shedding if we enter the state of rebellion. Yeah. That's where we don't care. Right? That's where we don't care anymore. Um, and I think like John, if we get into that state, can God fulfill his mission without us? He can. But we will definitely miss out on the joy and the pleasure of partnering with our Father. We will miss out on the reward and blessing of being on mission with him. I see it with my own daughter, uh, who always wants to play. It's always an enjoyable time when I play with her. But without fail, she will do something stupid when we play. And then we have to pause the play, we have to correct her, tell her that we have to do this thing. And in true Zaya style, she just sulks and walks away. Uh, and I stand there and I'm like, you, you're killing your time, right? You could be here, running with me, enjoying this. I'm not going anywhere. I didn't chase you away. But I was calling out the rubbish that you were doing that was preventing us from having an awesome time playing together. And that's what can happen with us in our state of rebellion. That's what happens to children. That he walks away, runs away, misses out on the blessing, partnering with his father uh, as he saves the world. And that's what we see in this book, in this passage. Uh, that God will let this pursuit the not end. Verses 17, the word says, And the Lord appointed great fish uh, to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish uh, for three days and three nights. And so even <coughs> Jonah is at the bottom of the ship. Uh, he 
throws himself into the bottom of the ocean, even there, God comes and finds him. God comes and rescues him, puts him even deeper into the belly of the fish, which is a mercy towards John, which is a grace towards John. And so you see this whole passage in verses 4, it's littered with God's relentless pursuit to never give up on John. In verses 4, the Lord does not sit back and leave Jonah to go astray, but instead he intervenes with the laws of nature as he hurls the great wind. Verses 6, he intervenes through the words of the pagan king. It tells Jonah to arise. Verses 8 to 10, again, he's having a conversation with the marinas, uh, or through the marinas, with Jonah. He wants to bring back his reluctant uh, runaway son, and he wants to bring him back to, to himself. Verses 14, Jonah, who was running away from the presence of the is now in uh, having a conversation with pagans who are calling the name of the Lord in Jonah's presence. Uh, verses 17, the Lord intervenes again by suspending the laws of the Adam King to rescue the runaway prophet. God does not leave Jonah. God does not forsake Jonah. It does not matter what is going on, but John, God runs after Jonah because he loves Jonah and he wants to work something out of Jonah. Just like he will chase us, pursue us, Chase us into the dark corners of life that we find ourselves in. Because there's something that God wants to work out in. God is not done with you. Amen. Mm-hmm. God is not going to leave you. God is not going to forsake you at all. Um, and so, in verse 17, what we see is that Jesus is, is quoting this verse again in Matthew 12. Um, and and what, what Jesus wants to remind us and remind his, his readers is that Jesus takes his own dissension, takes his own uh, downward trajectory. But the difference is that Jesus' downward trajectory of dissension leads to salvation and life. Ours leads to death and destruction. How else can Jonah get out of his downward spiral? How else can you get out of your own downward spiral? You can't. Just like the readers, you cannot go harder. You cannot pull yourself up with your own effort. But God has to pull it out to himself. And you know that verse 17 reminds us that that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for you as you sit here. That Jesus left his drum, the highest point of all existence. He came like one of us, uh, walked the earth. And not only that, but even as he lived here, he did not live like a king or live like a ruler, but he lived like the lowest in society. He lived like a servant. Not only that, but Jesus descends into the place of the dead. Just imagine this, the light of the world, the king of the universe, confines himself right, to the ground that he created. The ground that he used to create us, confines himself with that ground, the lowest point ever. And it is at that low point that Jesus wins victory over your rejection. It is at that low point that Jesus wins victory over your refusal. It is at that point that Jesus wins victory over your reluctancy, it is at that low point, and that Jesus wins victory over your bed. I don't know what stage you're at, but Jesus is the only one who can put you out. Jesus is the only one who can prevent you from even going lower. Jesus will pursue you. Jesus will look for you. Jesus will find you. Jesus will definitely kill the sin that so easily entangles you and takes you away from him. Turn your eyes to him. Trust him. Look to him. Turn your eyes away from yourself and all the issues that you have. He's called you to a bigger mission. He's called you to partner with him as he saves other lost souls 
that you need Mount Smyrna. He calls you to walk with him as he goes to fetch other sheep that need to come into this valley and belong in his kingdom. There's no other greater privilege. It's better than your next job promotion. It's better than your next pay. It's better than your next pay. There's nothing greater than your children. You can do that today. Amen. 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 Let me pray for us. Thank you. 